The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to focus and concentrate on the teaching of God's Word, and making sure that we are uh, filled with the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit who God has given us, who indwells every believer, is also operational in our lives to help us to learn, understand, uh, retain, and recall His Word. We utilize 1 John 1, 9 when necessary, knowing that whenever we sin, we are immediately out of fellowship with the Lord, and this quenches the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in His sanctifying work in our life. So as soon as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at that point, we are back in fellowship, and the Holy Spirit is again operational in the direction of spiritual growth. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together as a body of believers to worship you through the teaching and learning of your word. Father, we realize that there is nothing more important in our lives than understanding how you have created things and how you are in your person and what you have done for our salvation and spiritual life, and that our relationship with you is what gives meaning and significance to every other area of our life. Father, now we pray that you would help us to put aside the distractions and daily cares of things that have occurred this previous week, things that are perhaps impending, things coming up, that we might take the time now to concentrate without these distractions on your word, that you might use it to advance us in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been studying through Judges, and we're taking sort of a mini M-I-N-I, diversion from Judges right now as we are in the midst of looking at Gideon to look at the doctrine of the will of God. So we're not actually uh, looking at the text itself, but I do want to go back there in Judges 6 to see why it is that uh, I have taken this uh, brief diversion. It's lasted longer than I thought because we have had to cancel class on more than one occasion due to weather or some other factor, 
and we need to pray that for some reason these storm fronts that come through quit coming through on the weekend and start coming through on a Monday or Tuesday or some other time. Judges chapter 6, we see the fourth cycle of discipline in the history of the judges. The Israelites are under the oppression of the Midianites and the Amalekites who are sweeping through on an annual basis, wiping out the... uh, the crops, the agricultural produce, or in fact stealing it, stealing what they don't destroy, and producing famine in the land. According to Josephus, it took about three years for the Jews to realize this cycle and what was going on. And by then, they have been basically um, uh, kowtowed by the uh, Midianites and the Amalekites, and there is no hope in the land. It took seven years before they finally woke up to the fact that that they needed to turn to the Lord for aid, and that the gods of the Canaanites, the god was Baal in the Hebrew, most people pronounce it Baal in English, and the Asherim, who were basically, to bring it into a modern context, these are the gods and goddesses of uh, financial prosperity and, uh, and material success, uh, according to Canaan, the Canaanite pantheon. Now, what happens is that the Jews have fail to realize that the cause of their calamity is their spiritual rebellion against God. We have made the point again and again as we've gone through this that uh, as we look at Israel, that their military failure, their financial failure, their family breakdown, the breakdown of all of the values in their culture and in their society is a result of a core problem. Those are simple symptoms. The same thing we see in our own culture today problems that we have in family problems, breakdown of marriage, the high rate of divorce, problems in criminality, problems with uh, various government uh, philosophies or political philosophies, whatever it may be and whatever things seem to concern you the most, these are just symptoms of an underlying spiritual problem, and that spiritual problem is the rejection of God and the rejection of doctrine. And the same thing happens in our individual lives. Once we get on the path of reversionism, that is the reverse, reversing our spiritual growth, where we're not just out of fellowship in carnality, but we are staying there over an extended period of time, what happens is that things begin to fall apart in our life. We begin to make bad decisions because we're operating from motivation that flows from the sin nature. And even though they may appear to be good decisions at the time, they're ultimately they will come back to haunt us. And these decisions over time have a cumulative effect, and it might be 10, 15, 20 years down the road when suddenly you look around and you realize that you have made a mess of your life. Now, that applies. In fact, I was down here yesterday and we were talking about some things, and that applies to someone who goes through immoral reversionism. I won't need to take some time and develop out our categories on reversionism because there are two, really two categories of reversionism. There's immoral reversionism and then there is moral reversionism. Immoral reversionism leads to immoral degeneracy. And that is normally what we associate with someone who is in reversionism, someone who's given themselves over to um, free reign of their sin nature, overt sins, uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, Uh, sexual immorality, pornography, whatever it might be, these things are what we associate with a reversionistic lifestyle. However, there's also the moral reversionist. Now, his life doesn't appear to be such a wreck. Like the Pharisees at the time of Christ, instead of operating on immorality flowing from their sin nature, they're operating 
from a, um, a trend towards asceticism and legalism and self-righteousness. And rather than emphasizing personal sins, there's an emphasis on human good. But the core value, the underlying value is still arrogance. And arrogance always ends up in fragmentation of the soul and self-destruction. It is just that the self-destruction of the arrogant, uh, self-righteous person is, shall we say, less flamboyant than that of the uh, immoral reversionist who flames out on drugs or alcohol or uh, sexual problems or whatever the case might be. So you have to address both of those because they, they both produce uh, self-destruction and they eat away at the core fabric of any culture and any society. And if you don't address the core problem, and the core problem being a relationship with God, then it doesn't matter what you try to do to fix the overt symptoms. All you're doing in many cases is simply trying to whitewash the devil's world, or as J. Vernon McGee said, you're polishing brass on a sinking ship. And that's unfortunate in the lives of most people. They end up in a position of collapse, and then they turn to whatever seems to solve their problems at the moment, whatever will promise immediate relief. Sometimes that involves sin. Sometimes it just involves uh, just another uh, good, but wrong influence or solution to problems. They may go into psychology. They may go into uh, uh, some kind of uh, personal counseling. They may get involved in just trying to solve their problems by changing their job, changing where they live, changing their um, uh, marriage, changing whatever they decide needs to be changed in order to solve the problem without ever addressing the core issue, which is a personal walk with God and making doctrine the number one priority in life. And when doctrine is not the number one priority in life, and your relationship with God is not the number one priority in life, then sooner or later, life will start to fragment. Well, that's what's happened in, the, uh, in Israel, and after seven years of this discipline from the Midianites coming in, the people finally cry out to God. Now, God sends a prophet to them, an unnamed prophet in verse 8, to remind them of God's faithfulness and His grace historically because they have forgotten who God was, which is the standard cry in the uh, book of Judges, that they have basically decided that God no longer has a place in their life. They may talk about God. They probably remember a few things about doctrine. And they may uh, give lip service. But there is no real relationship with the Lord. And this happens in the lives. I've seen it happen in the lives of many believers. And somehow they get the idea. I've seen this over, over time. That somehow they get the idea that if, if they simply confess their sins, then everything's going to be okay. Well, that means confession of sin does mean that you are forgiven. You're back in fellowship with the Lord and you're at a place where you can go forward. But it doesn't mean that you go forward automatically. Let's put our diagram up on the board that we're so familiar with. At the point of salvation, we enter into an eternal relationship with God. We are placed in Christ. Now, this is what applies to the New Testament believer, not the Old Testament saint, but I'm making application to us in this church age. Secondly, we have a relationship defined by time, by our day-to-day walk with the Lord. 
we call this the filling of the Spirit or walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. When we are in fellowship with the Lord, then we are being filled with doctrine by means of the Holy Spirit and we're walking by means of the Spirit. But as soon as we sin, we are out of fellowship. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time developing this whole concept in the second hour as we go through 1 John. But I want to make application here. What happens is that when you get out of fellowship, we know that to return to fellowship, all we have to do is use 1 John 1, 9 and we're returned to fellowship. But the point is not simply gaining forgiveness. The point, is, which is a, in a sense a passive thing, we have nothing to do with it. It's not based on works. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on impressing God. It's all based on the work of Christ on the cross. It's an operation of grace. So we have forgiveness and we're back in fellowship, but now we have to do something active. We have to walk by means of the Spirit. It is a present active imperative in Galatians 5.16, which means that it is a, as a present imperative. It means that it is to characterize our life continuously. As an imperative, it means that it is a mandate. It is not an option. And that does not mean it's legalistic. You know, I, I heard something recently that, that just floored me. Somebody told me that they had heard from someone, having listened to a few tapes, that, that they thought I was a bit legalistic. You know, the problem is, some Christians have gotten to the point where they define legalism as anyone, as saying that you have to do anything in the Christian life. Well, if that's your definition of legalism, number one, it's certainly not biblical. Number two, you just throw out over 3,000 imperatives in the New Testament. See, legalism is not insisting that God says you have to do certain things in the Christian life. Legalism is saying that our relationship with God and blessing from God is dependent upon our obedience to those. That's legalism. Legalism in salvation means that salvation is not based on faith alone in Christ alone, but faith plus something. There's two options in... Uh, there's two options in... Uh, legalistic salvation. One is what I call front-loading the gospel. This is from uh, groups that say you have to believe and be baptized. More subtle forms are believe and repent, where they add something up front to faith. It's not faith alone. It's faith plus joining a church, faith plus baptism, faith plus repenting of your sins. Um, some of those things. And it's amazing how many gospel presentations you will see that where they say the first thing you have to do is recognize you're a sinner and repent of your sins. It never says that in the Scriptures. In fact, as we have studied in the Gospel of John, one of the purposes of John was that these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life through His name. So the Gospel of John was written for the purpose of explaining how we can acquire eternal life by faith in Christ. Not once in the entire Gospel of John... Does John use the word repent, metanoeo in the Greek, which means to change your mind? It's not there. Therefore, anyone who says that you have to repent doesn't, is biblically ignorant and is adding something to salvation. Well, that's legalism at salvation, one kind, the upfront or, or uh, front-loading the gospel. The second way in which people uh, add to the gospel is a more subtle form, what I call back-loading the gospel. This is what's evident in lordship salvation. Lordship salvation, they may say it's faith alone in Christ alone, but what the, the, the hidden agenda is that the faith that you have that saves will 
eventually work itself out in certain changes in your life. And the reason you know that you have, quote, saving faith is because there is this uh, marked change in your life. There is the fruit that is the result of repentance, they'll say. And 5, 10, 15 years down the road, if you look at your life and you don't see the kinds of changes that they think you ought to see, then the response is, well, you didn't have the right kind of faith. It wasn't saving faith. And... Um, and so faith, once again, you can't know you're saved unless you have certain works in your life. It's a very subtle form of works salvation. Now, in the Christian life, you get into a lot of uh, legalism as well, that you can't have a relationship with God if you commit certain sins or, or if you are involved in certain activities. And, of course, we know that sin does break our fellowship with God. It quenches the Holy Spirit and grieves the Holy Spirit. But there is recovery through the use of 1 John 1.9. But the reason we receive blessing in the Christian life is not because, that's the key word, it's not because of what we do. It's not because we respond to the commands of, uh, of Scripture. It operates like this. This is something that is rarely taught and even more infrequently understood. The believer, or every human being, is born minus R. We lack righteousness. Jesus Christ was born because of His deity. He possessed absolute perfect righteousness. In His humanity, He was born without a sin nature. Therefore, there was no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. And by virtue of the virgin birth, He's born without a, a genetic home for, this, for um, Adam's original sin called the sin nature. So He is born sinless. He possesses perfect righteousness and He never sins. He never sins because he possesses perfect righteousness and although he in his humanity has volition and could sin because he is deity, he will not sin. If he had sinned in his humanity, it would have changed to deity. An illustration would be if you weld a copper wire to a steel beam, the copper wire can still be bent. But because it is welded to the steel beam, it will not be bent. And in his humanity, he could not sin, and, uh, or he would not sin, but because it was linked to his deity, he, he could not sin. That's what's known as the impeccability of Christ. He was able not to sin, and he was also not able to sin. Well, at the cross, all of our sins are poured out upon him, and he pays the price as our substitute. When we trust Christ as our Savior, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us so that now we are clothed. That's the image the Scripture uses, which I think is a great image. We are clothed in His perfect righteousness so that when God the Father in His perfect righteousness looks down upon us, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are still sinners. We still possess a sin nature. We still continue to sin. But that is not the issue because the sin's been paid for on the cross. The issue is our possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's justice can now approve us and the door is open for His blessing. He blesses us because we possess the righteousness of Christ. He never blesses us because of personal righteousness. Now, in eternity past, God decided that He would bless each of us with 
we'll use variable X, X number of blessings. Those are set aside in our account, as it were, with our name on them. Those are ours because of God's decision to give them to us, not on the basis of who we are or what we do, but on the basis of who He is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's what makes it grace. Now, some of those blessings are what we call logistical grace blessings or life support blessings. Blessings related to job, so that we can have income, so that we can have a house, a place to live, buy a car, have a certain number of uh, a certain amount of food to keep body and soul together, as well as the provision of the teaching of Bible doctrine so that we can grow and advance spiritually. Then we have uh, advanced grace blessings, which uh, come to us and are distributed to us as we grow. Now, growth comes as a result of spending maximum amount of time in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit can, on the basis of the doctrine in our soul, produce spiritual growth, which culminates in character transformation into the character of Jesus Christ, which is called the fruit of production of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5:22 and 23. As we advance spiritually, we develop capacity for blessing. As we develop the spiritual capacity for those blessings, God then begins to distribute them to us. Not because we have done certain things, but because now that we have grown, we, are, we have the capacity to enjoy and appreciate those blessings without them being a cause of destruction in our life. The same thing would happen if you were to give your 8- or 9-year-old son or 14-year-old son, the keys to a brand new Ferrari. Has no capacity for appreciating the value of the car. You would wait if you could afford such a gift. You would wait until they were old. Hopefully, you would wait until they were old enough and mature enough to be able to handle that responsibly. You see this happen many times, especially in Hollywood, and we see this happen with many film stars, is that all of a sudden, when they're 17, 18, 19 years of age, they are cast into a position where they make tremendous amounts of money and have a tremendous amount of celebrity, and they can't handle it. And the next thing you know, they're in drugs and alcohol, and they're going to the Betty Ford Center, and they've made an or prison, and they've made an absolute wreck of their lives because they have no capacity to handle uh, the prosperity that's come their way. So God does not distribute to us those advanced grace blessings until we grow. Not because we grow, not because we do certain things. That's legalism. But because He is not going to give us things that would be, be destructive to us. And in some cases, I think there are certain logistical grace blessings that... Um, there, there, are, there, may, there are distinctions in logistical grace. If we're not advancing and if we're in reversionism, the level of logistical grace which God bestows upon us to keep body and soul together may be much less than we would have if we were walking by means of the Spirit, exercising positive volition and advancing in spiritual maturity. That's what legalism is. Legalism is saying, my decisions are the cause of God's blessing. That I, what I am teaching has nothing to do with legalism whatsoever. It is simply stressing the fact that if we're going to go anywhere in the spiritual life, then we have to do what God says. We not only have to do, it, do what God says, we have to do it the way God says to do it, a right thing 
done in a wrong way is still wrong. That's what's wrong with morality as a basis for the spiritual life. Most denominations and most churches do not understand or do not emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in spiritual growth today. As a result of that, their method of spiritual life is nothing more than simply preaching morality. Now, there's nothing wrong with morality, but it's not the spiritual life in the church age. Spiritual life in the church age is uniquely based on the role of God the Holy Spirit and believer being filled by means of the Spirit and advancing by walking by means of the Spirit. And it is the Spirit who, in turn, takes the doctrine that we learn and that we have stored in our soul, brings it to mind, we apply it, and He is the one who produces the, the internal change in our lives. We don't see big changes day to day, but we look back in our lives over a period of 5, 10, 15 years, and we see that if we have stayed with the Word, and doctrine has been a priority, and we're applying doctrine, that we'll see a tremendous amount of growth that's taken place and a real transformation that has, um, that has occurred, not because we have set out and gotten up every morning and applied the principles of the latest uh, self-improvement technique, set out our goals, and I'm not going to be impatient, I'm not going to be uh, angry, I'm not going to uh, uh, steal anymore, I'm not going to be undisciplined, and every morning we read through our list of ten priorities, and then we sort of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I guess that, uh, that idiom still works even in New England. Down in Texas, you know, everybody wears boots. And we know what a bootstrap is, but... Uh, we don't do it ourselves. We do it, we, we do it through God the Holy Spirit, and the priority is the, the uh, Word of God and the Spirit of God produces that spiritual growth. It's not something that we do. Well, the failure that we have today is the same failure they had back in Gideon's time, and that is a failure to make doctrine the number one priority and to try to make life work apart from dependence upon God and trusting Him exclusively. They were going after the gods of the Canaanites, thinking that they would solve their problems and the, that they would bring them success and, and happiness and financial security. The result was they lost it all. And now God is going to... They have finally called to the Lord for uh, to rescue them from the oppression of the Midianites. And God is, comes to a rather unprepossessing individual by the name of Gideon, and gives him a commission in verse uh, 12 through 14. Gideon reveals... There's two things we're going to focus on here that have to be in place in Gideon's life. God's going to take him through a crash course in spiritual growth to get him ready because obviously if you look at his response in verse 13, there's no doctrine in his soul. He's, he doesn't understand how God works or the plan of God. That means there's no doctrinal orientation. So before Gideon can get anywhere, there's got to be some doctrinal orientation. And before there can be doctrinal orientation, Gideon's got to get some grace orientation. Understand, it's not based on him. It's not based on his family. It's not based on how much he has in the bank account. It's not based on his military training or expertise. It's based on the power of God. It's not by might nor by power, but my, my spirit, saith the Lord. And Gideon's got to learn grace orientation and doctrinal orientation before he can uh, fulfill the mission that God has for him. So verse 13 reveals that Gideon has the same problem that his culture has. We're all products of our culture to some degree or another, and it's only through the 
sanctifying, transforming power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that that changes. So we see Gideon's frame of reference and his mentality in verse 13. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, and he's thinking, and he can't be with all this going on, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles? Sounds rather modern today. People saying, well, God exists. How, how does he let all this sin and suffering go on? Where are his miracles? Why doesn't he do something about it? Because they don't have any understanding of how God operates because there's no doctrinal orientation. Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's not our fault, it's God's fault. Doesn't that sound modern? And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. This is his commission. This is God's will and God's plan for his life. See, that's part of doctrinal orientation, is understanding God's will and God's plan for our life. When God says, go in this your strength, the this refers to the last statement in that verse, have I not sent you? His strength is that God has sent him. His strength is not his own background, his own training, his family, or any other human factor. The strength is the power of God and God's solution. The strength is not his solution. But before he can get anywhere, he has to learn some things about both grace and God's gracious provision and doctrinal orientation. Now, orientation is a word that means to align yourself with something. I remember when I was in college ROTC, first time that I really understood the word orientation. And we had to go through uh, map training and compass reading, and we used to do what's called orienteering. And we would learn how to read topographical maps, and uh, we would go out into, drop us off into some area out in the woods where I went to college. We were surrounded in East Texas by all these vast tracts of, uh, of land owned by paper companies. Uh, up in the piney woods of, of East Texas, you have vast uh, international paper owned eight, 10,000 acre tracts of land, champion paper, other paper companies. And uh, so they were uh, lands that were open to public use sometimes. And we would go out there and run these orienteering courts. We'd be dropped out in the middle of nowhere and be told to go from wherever we were, try to figure out where we were on the map, and then get to a certain destination. Well, the thing is, when first thing you do, and you do this whenever you go into some strange city, you pull out your map and you try to figure out where the, how the map fits the reality of what's around you. You have to line it up right so that north is north and south is south and east and west are in their respective positions. And then the map represents reality and it gives you an objective guideline. If your map is not oriented correctly, then instead of going north, you're going to go east or west or southwest and you're going to be in trouble because you are not properly oriented to reality. So the decisions you make from a position of disorientation are going to lead to failure and uh, confusion and getting lost. And that's what happens with most people who are not oriented to doctrine. Their, their thinking is not aligned with the objective reality of God's plan. That's what doctrinal orient, orientation is. And grace orientation is aligning our thinking with God's grace plan and God's grace system. That God works in our lives not on the basis of who we are and what we do, but on the basis of who He is and what Christ did on the cross and working out the implications of that. If you don't understand grace, you can never really understand the concept of love. Because the concept of love is a concept defined by Scripture and is exemplified 
and the work of Christ on the cross. John 3.16 states that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was a love that was not based on the value, the attractiveness, or anything in the life of the object of the love, but was totally based on who God was, on His character. And that is... If you don't understand that, you can't ever understand love. Husbands cannot understand the kind of love they're supposed to have for their wives. Wives cannot understand love. There cannot be the right kind of understanding uh, between parents and children. And love becomes something that is self-centered and selfish and is based on what you do for me and how you make me feel about myself as opposed to what is right. Love, in other words, loses all objective basis and becomes something that is purely subjective and emotional and therefore it vacillates with the circumstances and the, the, uh, uh, the times. So one year there may be love and the next year there's not love. And that ends up in marital failure. So in order to understand anything in life, we have to orient our thinking to two great principles. Grace and doctrine. And in order to orient to doctrine, we'll come back to grace orientation. Grace orientation logically precedes uh, doctrinal orientation because it is foundational to doctrinal orientation. But here, Gideon has to learn both. And first, God is teaching him something about his plan. So that is why we got into the study of the will of God. Gideon has to understand God's will, and it takes him several... Uh, prize before he finally gets the point. So let's review what we've covered on the doctrine of the will of God very quickly. It's been a couple of weeks due to the weather, and some of you weren't here for the first part, so you'll just have to get the tape, but we'll zip through the first eight or nine points rather rapidly so that we can finish it up this morning. The term will of God, as I'm using it, relates to three aspects of divine volition or God's will in relation to His creation. What do we mean when we ask the question, and it's subjective in its orientation, what's God's will for my life? Normally you hear younger people say that, or you hear people in crisis say that. Uh, sometimes you hear it from, from people who have just been laid off from a job, or whenever you have major life decisions, the question comes, what's God's will for my life? Well, let's try to understand what we're saying here and be a little more precise about it. First of all, there's God's sovereign will, God's sovereign volition, with regard to His creation. God's sovereign will with regard to His creation, where He brings to pass what He wills and what He has decreed. This refers to the Council of Divine Decrees in eternity past, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit set forth the outline of human history. Now, we don't know what God's sovereign will includes. It is secret. So that is not the question that we are asking when we say, what is God's will for my life? I've stated before that it includes the acts of sinful creatures. It includes good and evil. And we can chart it out with a circle. That, And inside the circle we have good, evil, and all that is. And by good I mean that which is uh, positive righteousness. It includes everything. It includes sin. It includes human good, divine good, a plan of salvation. Uh, it includes the, uh, the sovereign will of God. It's also called His permissive will because it includes the fact that God has created cr creatures with volition, with free will, who are going to choose to disobey Him. And God has allowed that to take place in history. So it includes everything that is. That's God's sovereign will. The second category is God's moral will. 
what sometimes we call that His revealed will, what He has said to do and not to do. It includes His, his mandates and the prohibitions in Scripture. This is also called God's desired will, but I like the term God's revealed will. He tells us what to do. There's the, the over 3,000 mandates and prohibitions of the New Testament define the circle of God's revealed will. And then there is God's overriding will. There are things that God has told us to do and we may aspire to do, but in God's overriding will, uh, we are, He's not going to allow us to do. For example, Paul had different times had wanted to go to different locations, yet God had another plan for his life. And he never got the opportunity to fulfill Not that he, what he wanted to do was wrong or sinful, it just was not what God wanted him to do at that particular time. Daniel 4.35, Proverbs 21.1, Revelation 4.1, Ephesians 1.11, and Proverbs 16.33 are all passages that define the sovereign will of God. Point three, we said that the specifics of God's decreed will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown. Therefore, to ask the question, what is God's will, in reference to the sovereign will, uh, we can't know. It's secret, unrevealed, and unknown. The only way we know God's sovereign will is after the fact. Human history is the outworking of God's sovereign will. Point four, we said that we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. This includes all the precepts, mandates, and prohibitions of the Scriptures where we have statements like Romans 2.18, we are to know His will, know the Word of God, know what we are supposed to do, how we are to live, what our priorities are supposed to be. Know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Interesting there, the emphasis is on things that are essential. That means that there are some things that, it's not that they're wrong, it's not that they're sinful, it's not that they're immoral, but they are distractions to the spiritual life. And so we can get involved in things that are good and moral, fun, enjoyable, worthwhile, but they are distractions to our spiritual life, and rather than choosing the best, we have chosen second best. And to know the difference is a result of spiritual growth. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 gives us a precise statement, and everything give thanks, gratitude, whether things are going well or things are not going well, whether we are in adversity or prosperity, we are to give thanks because we know that God is working all things together for good to those who love God. And if we are advancing in God's plan, then we fit the category of those who love God. It may be the love of a baby as opposed to the love of an advancing mature believer, but God is working all things together for good to those who love Him. First Thess 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That includes uh, fornication between those who are not married and adultery between uh, two parties who are not married to one another, but at least one is married to someone else. Second Corinthians 6.14, don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? It's not God's moral will for a believer to marry an unbeliever. Does that mean that if you are married to an unbeliever that you need to uh, confess your sin and go see the uh, go to divorce court and, and uh, end the marriage? No, that's not what Paul says in the remainder of the chapter. He discusses what the options are. But the point that he is making is don't go there. 
Don't make that mistake because it will just put you in an even worse situation and create even more problems. Point five, therefore God's sovereign will includes His revealed will, but His revealed will, thou shalt not or thou shalt, clearly is not always His decree. The most uh, obvious example of this is He said, thou shalt not commit murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill in the Ten Commandments. It says thou shalt not commit murder. It is a prohibition of homicide. Homicide is what God used to bring about our salvation. The death of Christ on the cross was illegal according to Jewish law, illegal according to Roman law, and therefore it was the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history, and it was a... um, It was murder, but God used that to bring about our eternal salvation. So His revealed will, thou shalt not commit murder, was clearly different from His decreed will. But that does not make Him responsible for the commission of immorality. Then I put this diagram up on the board. The sovereign will of God includes good and evil and all that is in human history. And His revealed will includes all of the... uh, Precepts of Scripture revealed by the prophets, the Holy Spirit, and Scripture. There is an overlap, but there is clearly areas that are distinct. Point number six. Usually we become concerned about the will of God in the midst of some momentous decision. However, God's will affects every decision we make to some degree. It provides a framework. We need to learn to think within the framework of God's plan and God's provision, which is the Word of God. That's what doctrinal orientation is. As we advance in our understanding of Scripture, we begin to think about life as God thinks about life. Once we develop that framework, then within that framework, we, we begin to make wise decisions. This is the, one of the three categories of the Old Testament was wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, the issue often was not something that was moral versus immoral, good versus bad, but that which is good and that which is better. Wisdom. Chokhmah in the Hebrew. And the only way you develop Chokhmah is by living within a framework and growing and advancing spiritually, living within a biblical framework and advancing in doctrinal orientation. Point number seven, if, a man, if man is to do all things to the glory of God, then even the most minute decision demands attention. But not every decision necessarily involves either a moral issue or a specific will of God statement in relation to either geographical will or operational will. Point eight, since we can only know the specific of, specifics of God's revealed a moral will before the fact, questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. Since God is no longer involved in giving revelation, the issue is understanding the revelation that God has given and living consistent with it. That's doctrinal orientation. That's the only way we can know God's will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, the proverb says, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. If we are filled with the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, making doctrine the number one priority in our life, we're going to make certain decisions in life and get God in His overriding will is going to move us along the path that He wants us. He's not going to violate our volition, but if, for example, God wants us in a particular geographical location and somehow 
we make a wrong decision, God is going to not, we're not going to ruin our lives because, oops, I moved to uh, Sacramento instead of uh, uh, New York. God just will somehow override things so that we never end up going in the direction of that wrong decision and He gets us routed through circumstances right where He wants us. So, the point I'm making is we don't end up in some sort of hyper-subjectivity contemplating your navel about what is a, what, what's the right decision. Unfortunately, what I find happens is that the issue isn't, for, for a lot of people, isn't so much making the right decision. It's They really know what the right decision is. It's just not the decision they want. And so now becomes the conflict. How am I trying to figure out how to change God's will so that it's my agenda and not His agenda? Nine. Often it is taught with respect to the will of God that that, that God has a specific will for our lives. This is sometimes said to be living in the center of God's will and usually is expressed in terms of a geographical will or the operational will of God. Now, those are two categories that are important to understand. God sometimes has a specific place for us to be at a specific time. That's God's geographical will. He wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Sometimes God has a certain thing He wants us to do operationally. Um, Sometimes He does not. He doesn't always have a a specific geographical will. We know that at times with, with looking at the lives of different people, for example, Moses, after Moses left Egypt, God probably didn't have will as to whether he was in the, the northern Arabian Peninsula or the southern Arabian Peninsula or whether he headed up to Syria with the sheep or not. During those 40 years, God was training and preparing Moses, but he didn't have a specific geographical will until the end of those 40 years at the wilderness, and then God gave him specific geographical instruction. So there are times when there's specific geographical will and times when there's not, and if we are walking by the Spirit and we are uh, making doctrine the number one priority in our life, then we don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to miss the signal and somehow end up outside the geographical will of God and therefore out of fellowship and never have God's highest and best for my life. That produces such a guilt trip on people. If God has geographical will, He makes it clear to us. He may make that the only possible option so that there are no other decisions to make in life. It just becomes obvious that that's what we are to do. The example is Jonah. Jonah tried to avoid the will of God by running off to Tarshish, but he ended up in Nineveh. We looked at Acts 10, where Peter was told to go to Cornelius. Now we come to point 10. Knowing God's will is based on the grace learning spiral. The God, the Holy Spirit, teaches us doctrine, and through that, He guides and leads us. Galatians 5.18 As we walk by means of the Spirit, the Spirit leads us. And there we've seen that because of the Greek word that's involved there, it's like following a path. So that the leading of the Spirit is done objectively through the Word of God. It is always the Word of God plus the Spirit of God. A couple of examples of this in Scripture, in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect, that is the word telios, which means complete, 
and is a word for spiritual maturity, not perfection, that you may stand spiritually mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What he is praying for is that you would advance in the plan of God to spiritual maturity. That is the objective will of God. He is not praying that somehow you will know God's will for your life, whether to be a carpenter or a plumber, or whether to uh, live in Rome or live in Jerusalem, but that you may be assured in the will of God, which is objective and clear in the Scriptures, revealed in the Scriptures. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world. That means that we are to not be have our thinking to conform to the thinking of the cosmic system, the world around us but we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the starting point. That's doctrinal orientation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that is, learning doctrine so that you think about reality the way God thinks about reality, that you may prove, that you may demonstrate what the will of God is. Now, here it's talking about the moral will of God, that you may demonstrate in your life what God's will is the statements that I read earlier, that you are thankful in all things, abstaining from sexual immorality, praying without ceasing. Those are, you demonstrate what the will of God is and that it is good, acceptable, and perfect so that as we reach spiritual maturity, our lives become a testimony to God's will that it is what is right and good. Ephesians 5.17 says, So then do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And in the very next verse, we have a double mandate, a prohibition and a mandate. Don't be drunk, but be filled by means of the Spirit. So that is the will of the Lord. See, the will of the Lord statements in Scripture are clear and objective. They're not based on some sort of uh, uh, shell game where God is playing hide-and-seek with the P, and you have to somehow guess what God's will is for your life. Ephesians 6.6 6 relates to our work life, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but when it's, it, this is related to how you deal with a... It's addressed to a slave obeying its master, but it has application to anyone who works for an employer, that you don't serve the employer by way of eye service just to please them, but as a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This is built, building a doctrine of, of uh, work and a work ethic, that the believer should be the best worker at the workplace, because he is doing his work there not for the boss, not for the human employer, but serving the Lord in that capacity. So whatever your job is, whatever you do on a day-to-day basis to, to bring home the money to keep body and soul together, you are not ultimately working for that individual. You are working for the Lord, and that should characterize how you perform on the job. And then we have looked at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, God promises. So that's clearly objective, and that's the word. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So God promises that He gives us a clear instruction as to what His will is. Point number 11 is we learn doctrine, and the Holy Spirit stores the doctrine in our soul. Then the Holy Spirit calls it to our thinking so that we can apply it. That is the grace learning spiral. As we grow and advance in the doctrine that we learn, it produces a reservoir of doctrine in our soul that in turn produces what the Bible calls wisdom. 
wisdom so that we're able to make good decisions in life situations, choose the better and not just the good, and to make decisions that ultimately produce a life that is of value and beauty spiritually. That's the concept of wisdom. It's a skill. And skills are developed through practice. That's why we emphasize the stress busters as spiritual skills. A skill is something you do over and over and over again till you're tired, till it's tedious, till you're, you're fed up with it. But, but in anything in life that you become good at, you practice it over and over and over again until you excel at the skill. And then when you have excelled at the skill, you do it without thinking. It just comes automatically. It's in muscle memory, for example, in dance or in athletics. And then you do things that are just absolutely incredible and beautiful. And that's what happens in the spiritual life as you go through the practice of continuously confessing sin, walking by means of the Spirit, being doctrinally oriented, uh, grace-oriented, doctrinally oriented, uh, using the faith rest drill. Point 13, the geographical will of God relates to operating in a specific location. For example, Jonah needed to go to Nineveh. Paul was supposed to go to Rome. And we know that if God wants us in a specific location, we will get there. Point 14, operational will of God includes using both your spiritual gift and your natural talents and abilities to the glory of God. That is why God has given them to us. So this has to do with uh, how we work out our, at the application of doctrine in our lives. For Gideon, the operational will of God is going to be to engage the enemy in combat and to destroy the uh, Midianite armies. And he is going to do that in such a way that never again in history are the Midianites a factor in uh, Israel's history. He is going to wipe them out, and with his small army of 300, he's going to destroy 150,000 of the enemy. And that is what glorifies God. So point 13 defines a geographical will. Point 14 defines the term operational will. Point number 15. Often decisions in life are not related as much to the final decision as testing the process of deciding. You see, there's two things that happen. Number one is the ultimate decision. Number two is how did you get there? What was your motivation? How did you go about the process? Sometimes the test is how we get to the decision as much as the decision itself. Sometimes there may be uh, three or four options that are all within the uh, operational will of God and several other options that may not be. But the Lord is concerned about how we go about it. Do we go about it through utilizing prayer, utilizing uh, applying doctrine, recalling promises, being filled by the Spirit, or do we just uh, jump at it because it happens to be what we want to do or we think it will make us feel better or whatever? If we go about the right thing in the wrong way, it's still wrong. So often decisions in life are not related as much to the final decision as testing the process of how we get there. Numbers 12, 22 to 26 is the, um, is the episode of Balaam and his talking ass. That's his talking donkey. And it reveals three categories of God's will. Balaam was a prophet who was uh, reversionistic, and the enemies of Israel wanted Balaam to curse Israel. And so the king of Moab came along and wanted Balaam to come out and curse Israel. And God said, 
in terms of permissive will, said you can go, but you are not allowed to curse Israel. You can go to Moab. So his permissive will allowed for Balaam to go to Moab. And his, the overriding will of God is present in Numbers 23, where God overrules Balaam's decision to try to curse Israel, and Balaam's mouth was shut. So even if you make the wrong decision related to God's geographic will or his operational will, his overriding will kicks in, and if you're walking by the Spirit and you're making doctrine the number one priority, God's overriding will will make sure that you end up in the right place doing the right thing. We see another example of the operation of decision-making and wisdom in Acts 15, 6 through 22. In Acts chapter 15, the issue is the relationship of the Gentiles to the um, gospel and to Jews and the law of Moses. So let's turn there and just go over that passage. Galatians, or Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 22. Just briefly summarize the situation. This is what's called the Jerusalem Council, early stage of the church, and we see the decision-making process of the apostles. Verse 6, and the apostles and elders came together, that's pastors, the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. And the problem is, the matter is, what is the relationship of Gentiles to Jews and to the law of Moses? Should they be circumcised or not? To what degree are they to observe the rituals in the Mosaic Law? Verse 7, after there had been much debate. So they go through a decision-making process of looking at the pros and cons on each side of the, of the question. They get the facts. That's part of decision-making. Get all the facts you can. Don't just make a visceral decision from the gut as to how you think God wants you to act. That's called mysticism. You get all the facts. So the, after there had been much Debate. Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So here we see Peter going to Scripture, what we now call Scripture, which was an event in his life, surrounding taking, his taking the gospel to Cornelius, who was a Gentile a Roman centurion. And so he's going to a biblical example from which to extract guidelines for the decision. God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So he's going to the Scripture to find a scriptural parallel. First they get all the facts, then they look through Scripture for, for a biblical parallel, and then verse 12, And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with, his, with the words, the prophets agree. And then he, he quotes from Amos 9. And then he gives his decision in verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from, from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from, from what is strangled and from blood. 
For Moses from ancient generations, as in every city those who preached him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Verse 22. Notice the first phrase. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch. It seemed good. There's no direct revelation here. There's no necessarily right way or wrong way to deal with the decision they made. Now, they've made a right decision. It's based upon revelation that God's given them, but how are they going to implement the decision? There's no specific right way or wrong way to do it. This is where wisdom comes in as a stage beyond the simple blacks and whites of the mandates of Scripture. You utilize wisdom. You bring to bear experience. You bring to bear what you have learned, the framework of doctrine from doctrinal orientation, and then you make a decision that seems best, choosing the best way as opposed to just any way, even though other ways may be uh, produce similar results. They don't sit down and say, okay, let's pray to God and see what the right way is to, to implement this decision. See, that's how a lot of people handle it today. Well, let's pray about it. Well, they, they have taught, they prayed. Prayer, it's not that prayer was absent here, but when they get to this point, it's okay, we've made a decision, we've looked at Scripture, we know what's right, now how are we going to implement it? What seems best to us? That's wisdom. They make a wise decision, and then they implement it. So, the conclusion in looking at the will of God is that though there, is, there are clearly times when God has operational will, God has a geographical will, there are other times when we make decisions where there is not a specific will, but the issue is what is best. And at that point, we're making what is classified as a wisdom decision based on a framework of doctrinal orientation in the soul, which is produced by God the Holy Spirit. This is where Gideon finds himself in Judges 6 because he just has not yet oriented himself to the plan of God and there is no doctrinal orientation, so God has to begin to explain this to him and make it clear to him, and we will come back and look at those dynamics starting in verse 15 next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to see how you make your will clear to us. Father, we know that first and foremost we need to be saved, and if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal salvation then this is the opportunity to make that, that sure and certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And you can make that uh, a reality in your life right now simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who died on the cross for your sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. Father, for the remainder of us, we pray that we would be challenged by the importance of making doctrine a priority of our life, that as we orient our thinking to doctrine, that we then develop the framework for making wise decisions that glorify you both in time and eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.